0: The biggest news of the week came when President Trump addressed the nation on Wednesday after Iran launched a retaliatory attack on an air base where some U.S. troops were based and announced that there were no casualties and Iran appeared to be standing down. Instead of any new military escalation, Trump announced that there were going to be new sanctions put on Iran. And while a broader conflict seemed to have been de-escalated, there was still concern of attacks through proxies, cyber attacks, and what Iran will do with their nuclear program. For more on this big story, we spoke to Dave Lawler. He's the world editor at Axios for all the fallout after the Iranian strike.
1: The biggest thing we learned is that Trump was not going to respond militarily. That was what we were all waiting to hear. And in fact, it was what the world was waiting to hear when Trump tweeted last night. I don't know know if you saw his tweet that said, all is well, which was a good (laughs) sign, I guess. Obviously, President Trump had the casualty reports. He saw that no Americans and in fact, no Iraqis were wounded or killed. And he has decided that. This military ladder we were on, we're not going to be climbing any higher on it in the short term. He did say there will be new sanctions coming. Obviously, there has been a series of sanctions and there is not that much left to sanction, to be frank, when it comes to Iran. But we're not going to be seeing any military strikes in response to Iran's strikes last night.
0: I guess one of the biggest concerns is any type of attacks from proxy groups, because that's kind of how this all had been playing out for the most part. I think it was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on one of the Sunday shows, they're going to start going after the decision makers. And that's why they decided to kill General Soleimani in the first place, because up until then, everything had been carried out by proxies or we took out a proxy group, things like that. But that's the concern right now is that one of these other groups might retaliate in some way still
1: the proxies are definitely something to watch for. That is Iran's MO, right? Their direct attack from the Iranian military on the U.S. forces last night was an incredibly rare step. Iran usually acts through its proxies. That is deniable. It's less likely to lead to instantaneous reaction from the U.S. Last night they thought in order to send a message they needed to go direct, but that doesn't mean we won't be seeing actions from their proxy groups around the region. The other big thing we need to watch out for is the nuclear question. Iran has in the past week said that they're no longer constrained by the 2015 nuclear deal that President Trump pulled out of. So if Iran continues to exceed the limitations of that deal further and further, Will the U.S. then think it has to take action? That's another trajectory to watch out for. That
0: played out even in the president's address in the morning before he even said good morning, you know, to address the crowd or the nation. He said the first thing he said was, as long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. That's how he started.
1: Exactly. And and I'm sure you were, as I was, waiting to hear whether he was going to de-escalate or escalate the situation. And you're right. He started before he even said good morning. He said Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. Very quickly after that, he got into the kind of language that I think is the big takeaway here. Basically, Americans should be happy that this is the outcome with no Americans hurt. We got rid of the guy we targeted. They didn't hurt any of our troops. And this is an outcome we can live with. But you're right. Ever since the nuclear deal was being negotiated and he was a private citizen, he has been very vocal on this issue. He clearly looks at Obama's record in Iran as something that he needs to repudiate. That motivates a lot of his actions on Iran, I think. And so he did say in his speech that everyone who signed up to the nuclear deal, that's the U.K., France, Germany, China and Russia, should now basically decide this deal is dead and work with him toward getting a new deal with Iran, which seems unlikely, but that is the path that he says everybody should take.
0: One of the assessments I read said that Iran's attacks appeared designed for maximum domestic effect with minimum escalatory risk. And that really did seem to be what played out, right?
1: So the visuals last night were quite powerful from an Iranian perspective you had the supreme leader himself in the command room you know there were pictures of him standing there apparently ordering these strikes you had Iranian media playing these up as a huge blow to the United States in fact there were some false reports in Iranian media of mass casualties of US troops they clearly wanted the domestic audience to think that Soleimani had been forcefully avenged that this had been as they put it a slap in the face to the United States and yet no US troops wounded or killed. Iran did give advance notice to Iraq. Iraq gave advance notice to the United States. So the U.S. in the hour before this attack knew something was coming. And so they clearly did not want this to be the sort of catastrophic event. If you saw dozens of Americans hit by this strike, that really would have put us on a trajectory to war. Their desired outcome was not war here, but it was a clear message to their people that they were not going to take the death of Soleimani lying down. We started
0: seeing satellite images of the Al-Assad air base. Tell us a little bit about the damage that occurred there that we know of. And then the other thing was, too, because the number differed a little bit here and there, but they said that there was about 15 rockets that were fired. Ten hit the Al-Assad base. There was uh, another one that hit another base nearby. And then about four or so rockets that just malfunctioned altogether
1: that's the Pentagon assessment. There were 15 ballistic missiles fired from Iran into Iraq, 10 hit Al-Assad Air Base, which is the base that President Trump visited, I believe it was in 2018. And that was the base he was referring to when he said, you know, we built a very expensive air base that Iraq should pay for if they kick us out. So maybe that target was picked with that in mind. One struck in Erbil, And four, according to the Pentagon, did not reach their target. President Trump, I believe, described it as minimal damage, but there was damage to the airbase. But obviously, the most important thing here is that none of the troops based at either base were directly impacted.
0: For Republicans and Democrats, got a hearing earlier from uh, the top military brass talking about, you know, why they decided to target Soleimani it was kind of along party lines for the most part. Democrats didn't really uh, see what the need was. They didn't see if there was an imminent threat coming from Soleimani. Republicans were praising the president's decision. But what do we know about that? And then also uh, what this means for Iran for losing an important military leader.
1: So from the U.S. political perspective, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been the face of this in the aftermath. He came out immediately and said, Soleimani posed an imminent threat that there were plots that the U.S. was tracking that would have impacted Americans in the short term if they had not taken this action. The public have obviously not seen any evidence of that. And so members of Congress today were expecting to hear the case made from military briefers. Essentially, Democrats all said we did not hear what we needed to hear to believe that there was an imminent threat here many Republicans said they did. The wild cards there were Senators Mike Lee and Rand Paul, who are two Republicans, but who are advocates of restraint militarily. Mike Lee was quite forceful on this point, said, essentially, we were told by the briefers that we had to trust them, that we had to show a united front, and that we couldn't question this decision to strike. And he was outraged, essentially, by that messaging and said... He didn't hear anything suggested that there was an imminent strike and that he wants them to come back for authorization if they're going to take any further action on Iran. So it was split mostly on party lines, with some exceptions there. In terms of Iran, they have lost really the face of the regime around the region. Soleimani was not just a military commander. He was sort of the de facto foreign minister. He traveled to countries around Iran quite frequently. He was also an icon to these proxy forces that are allied with Iran. So they have lost symbolically an extremely significant figure and tactically and strategically, they have lost their top commander. Now he was part of an institution. He has been replaced by another experienced commander. His charisma and experience was such that maybe there's not a like-for-like replacement for somebody like Soleimani, but it doesn't mean that overnight the Quds Force, which is the elite unit that he was in charge of, has become a non-factor. Iran is the government, not a terror group, and so they will move forward without him, but certainly it's a blow both to their pride and also a blow to their strategic abilities in the region.
0: Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. To lighten up the mood a little bit, we're gonna talk about the top twenty defining comedy sketches of the past twenty years. While some of these sketches might not have been the best or even the funniest, these comedy sketches held a prominent place within our culture. There was a few criteria in place to help narrow down this list, and for all of this we spoke to Ilahi Izadi. She's the pop culture writer for the Washington Post, and it all started with a little bit more cowbell.
2: So I set out to make a list of 20 defining comedy sketches. So by defining, it doesn't necessarily mean the best or even ones that are particularly funny. Comedy especially tastes can rapidly change. What you found really funny and incisive 10 years ago is very dated now, for instance. So that wasn't the criteria necessarily. So, you know, some of my favorites may not have ended up on the list, so it's right. not necessarily my favorite ones are the ones that I think are hands down the best. But I was trying to present a landscape of how our culture has And also, how sketch comedy as a genre and a medium has shifted. So, through these sketches, they either had to demonstrate or exemplify our comedic sensibility during the past 20 years, or these sketches helped propel forward some sort of change, whether it's social or technological, or how the craft of comedy and sketch comedy has evolved. Or they were sketches that sort of permeated our collective psyche, spawned catchphrases, or altered how we thought about certain things. So, it's kind of a nebulous description, but that's how I. I approached it. My ground rules are they had to be televised in some form. So I didn't go to like Vine or YouTube videos. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of comedy out there on those platforms. So I'm thinking televised sketch comedy. There had to have been some sort of script aspect to it. So late night talk shows, for instance, have a lot of what could be considered sketches, but a lot of it involves improvisation, interacting with other people and you don't know what their response is going to be. And I stuck to American comedy. The Brits have a lot of great sketch comedy. So I, I didn't look to that just to kind of narrow it
0: down so let's run through the list and have some fun with it the first one that you started with was more cowbell in 2000 this was an snl sketch and i just remember this one being one of my all-time favorites here's a little bit a little clip and then we'll, we'll talk about it after i gotta have more cowbell
2: baby
1: i'd be doing myself a disservice and every member of this band if i didn't perform the hell out of this guess what i got a fever and the only prescription
0: is more cowbell. <laughs> now, this clip had a lot of stuff. It had Will Ferrell in his prime, I think. It had Christopher Walken. It was just a great sketch all together. But why did you put it on the list?
2: This kind of sets us up right because it came in the year 2000 and it sort of stood out to me as an example of a sketch that went viral before the concept of going viral was a thing. This was before social media, before YouTube, before there was a way to share instantly these snippets of comedy from television and somehow everyone kind of knew about this catchphrase, this joke oh, yeah. and it's so persistent. There are still people like putting on their dating profiles. <laughs> I have a fever and the only prescription is more cowboy. Like people still find this very funny. It is kind of a timeless piece of comedy. It's also just so bizarre because it comes out of nowhere. Um, It's (laughs) not topical, but it is one of those jokes you just might imagine, like someone sitting around being like, why is there so much cowbell in this song? And it sort of spawned this thing and and Will Ferrell's performance in it his shirt kind of creeping up his belly, which your listeners aren't going to be able to see (laughs) through the radio, but that's kind of one of the elements of it. But yeah, it was so sticky in our culture and it's still around.
0: Let's uh, move on through some of these. SNL obviously has a lot on this list because they are the longest running sketch show. But another one you highlighted was Lazy Sunday with Andy Samberg.
2: And this one is interesting because it demonstrated sort of how technology has adapted and how television and comedy adapted and changed with television and it created new things. Because the thing about this sketch, which it was a music video, hardcore beat and lyrics that were presented kind of hardcore, but the premise was very sweet. Like, oh, we're just going to go watch the Chronicles of Narnia at a movie theater with our cupcakes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, it, you know, it was very catchy. It's very infectious. But this was at a time when TV was still being made with just TV in mind so the I idea of putting your TV content on YouTube was like, TV was still trying to figure out what that might mean. YouTube was only a few months old when this came out. So this is the first digital short from the Lonely Island guys. And it became one of the first bits of comedy on television that found what they consider a second life online. So it amassed millions of viewers within days. And at the time, NBC was like concerned, wanted the clips taken down. There were pirated versions that went up. And then people started posting their own versions, which now is like something we're so familiar with, right? right. When something goes viral, everyone does their own parody. But this was like the first time something like this became a big thing. Um, even Michael Scott did it on The Office. So it was like, kind of a meta parody there. So yeah, and it also was the predecessor to some of the other digital shorts that SNL has done, which have gone to win Emmys and also be nominated for Grammys. Right.
0: Okay. Moving on a little bit. Chappelle Show. You have two on the list here, so we'll just kind of lump them together. Um, I have
2: three, actually. Three, is it?
0: Okay. Well, we'll just still talk about Chappelle, Dave Chappelle, just all as one. One of the funniest guys around. And he's kind of had a revival of late with his Netflix comedy specials also. But this is from when he had his Chappelle Show sketch show. And he talked about a lot of things. He had the Clayton Bigsby, the black white supremacist. He had the Charlie Murphy true Hollywood stories, which were also super hilarious. Here's a quick clip of one of those.
1: I'm Rick James, bitch. (laughs)
2: Enjoy yourself.
1: (laughs)
0: And that's another one of the things that became such a catchphrase for a lot of people. It actually became a problem for Dave Chappelle himself.
2: It's a catchphrase That to this day I mean the man Can't really avoid um, He gets heckles With that This happened in 2004 And he's still hearing it And even like When he goes on vacation With his family He had a bit In one of his Stand-up specials Many years ago About like Mickey Mouse Coming up and telling him that So yeah That is true It's a very popular Catchphrase It helped put his show On the map And it also actually Helped revive Rick James's career You know He had kind of Not been in the spotlight Had not been very popular At the time And he enjoyed Like a resurgence At that time In popular culture and sort of a rediscovery of him. And it is a very like silly, funny thing. And I think it does demonstrate the sillier and more outlandish aspects of Chappelle's show. And the Clayton Bigsby one, as you mentioned, yeah, I mean, that's like a premise of a black white supremacist that's still like so ingrained in our minds that when Spike Lee did Black Klansman, which was nominated for Oscars last year, like he first heard that premise of a black cop pretending to be a white person who wanted to join the KKK. He's like, oh, are we just redoing that Chappelle show sketch?
0: Another set of guys that made uh, multiple spots on this list, Key and Peele. For a while, they had just an amazing sketch show also. So they had a few, Obama's Anger Translator, they had the teacher, oh, I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, oh, the, um, so, Mr.
2: Garvey. Yeah, Mr. Garvey, the substitute teacher.
0: teacher. I think we have a little clip of that one. Let's play that and then we'll talk about Key and Peele. Well, you better be sick, dead, or mute, A.A. Ron.
1: Here. Yeah. Oh, man.
0: Why didn't you answer me the first time I said it, huh? Huh? I'm just, you know, I'm just asking. You know, I said it like four times. So why didn't you say it the first time I said A-A-Ron"? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> a aaron? This <laughs> is pretty
0: These guys uh, were hitting it pretty good when they had their show
2: going something I learned in doing this list is that sketch is Comedy Central's most viewed YouTube video. Wow! It has at least 175 million views and counting. If you just like look at the public view counter and they almost didn't put the sketch online because, you know, at the time they figured out which sketches from the TV show are we going to put online? They almost didn't put this one on. So just goes to show you kind of don't know what's going to take off. But this sketch is brilliant because it's a few things, right? It's a flip of a well-known construct. In this case, it's the well-known construct of a white teacher in any inner city classroom trope. Now you have this teacher who says he's from the inner city or he taught in the inner city and now he's in this mostly white classroom and these names are just so ridiculous. And so it like provides that really nice like flip of point of view. And then also, it is very universal because everyone has the experience of having a substitute teacher. This is also <laughs> right. like the perfect sketch to send someone who has one of the names he butchers in the sketch. So it kind of will always live on. Like if you have an Aaron or a Blake or a Jacqueline in your life, like they're going to get this sketch.
0: I wanted to end with Portlandia. They had a great sketch also. And for highlighting Portland, Oregon, and like kind of all the hipsters and everything that would be up there. I thought their show was very funny also. So here's a quick clip from Portlandia, and we'll end off with them.
2: Hi,
1: I'm Bryce Shivers.
2: Hi, I'm Lisa Eversman. And And we we put put birds birds on things. things. Today,
1: we're going to go to a store on Mississippi Avenue. Nothing has birds on it, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to put birds on things. Spruce it up. Make it pretty. Thank you.
2: Put Put a a bird bird on it. it.
0: And that's another one that, you know, you for days after that, or, you know, even longer than that, people would be saying, put a bird on it, put a bird on it.
2: And also, like, it's such a good example of the sensibility of that show. But also, like, you know, it's highly specific. Let's make a show based in Portland with all these, like, very particular characters. But somehow, like, they were recognizable to everyone. And so right and so it's like showing how to make fun of like these distinct quote unquote hipster habits that's how I kind of thought of it and yeah like a lot of sketches are still very funny today
0: Elahi Izadi pop culture writer with Washington Post thank you very much for joining us
2: thanks for having me
0: don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.